Thank you, Jermaine. Good morning, everyone. It's really good to be here. I should say as well, I do also study part-time at the Irish Baptist College. I've been slowly chewing away at that for the past five or so years. Um, so I know you're uh, familiar with the Baptist College. That's really a disclaimer that if you don't like the sermon or you think it's rubbish, blame David Luke because he's one of the people who taught me how to preach. Uh, so, uh, but it's great to be with you this morning. If you'd like to turn uh, with me and keep that passage in Colossians open in front of you, Colossians chapter 3. And I remember whenever I was asked to speak at Strandtown Baptist this morning a couple of months back and I was told it was the 9th of December immediately I kind of thought that's really close to Christmas and here we are 9th of December and indeed it is really close to Christmas and one of my favorite things about Christmas I was very jealous I was sitting there listening to what the kids are going to be doing in a couple of weeks one of my favorite things about Christmas is Christmas movies and I'm sure you're the same and my favorite Christmas movie I agree with Andy my favorite Christmas movie is Elf it's the best Christmas movie out there uh, I don't think any other movie quite compares to Elf and if you're going to come back here on the 22nd, which I really hope uh, you and the kids are going to, let me give you a little bit of a, a synopsis of the, the storyline of Elf, hopefully to whet your appetite so that you come back in a couple of weeks. Don't worry, I won't, I won't include any spoilers. Um, but pretty much the movie Elf centers around this guy, Buddy. And Buddy, through a strange set of circumstances, grew up in the North Pole with Santa and his elves. And so uh, Buddy's whole life, he believed that he was an elf, even though he was like six foot tall, way taller than all the other elves, and he wasn't quite able to hack the pace when it came to making toys. He believed his whole life that he actually was an elf. But one day Buddy receives devastating news, earth-shattering news. He actually discovers that he's not an elf. Actually, he's a human being, shock horror. And his family live in New York City. And so as the rest of the film unfolds, we follow Buddy on his adventure to travel to New York City to try and be reunited with his family. And well, as Buddy arrives in New York City, he experiences a massive culture shock, doesn't he? This elf man who can see no harm in anyone does all these weird things. For breakfast, he eats spaghetti with marshmallows, crust candy, and maple syrup. He's able to make about a thousand snowballs in five seconds. And in the process, Buddy the Elf manages to do just about everyone's head in. He is in the middle of New York City, and he is suffering from an extreme identity crisis, isn't he? But the story of Elf and the testimony of Buddy really reminds us of an important principle. And the principle is this. Your identity affects your activity, doesn't it? Your identity affects your activity. In other words, who you think you are is inextricably linked to what you do. Your identity affects your activity. But he thought he was an elf. That was the identity which he was convinced that he had. And because of that identity, that's why he acted a certain way. It affected his activity. That's why he did all these weird things, even though he was living in the middle of New York City. Your identity affects your Activity. And that's a principle, I think, which Paul's been pulling out in those first two chapters of Colossians, hasn't he? As he's been writing to this group of believers in Colossae, he's been trying to remind them about their identity. And really the overarching theme as we read about our identity in this book and in all the New Testament letters is this. Your identity, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, is that you are in Christ. You are in Christ. Very rarely in the New Testament are Christians actually referred to as Christians. In fact, they're constantly reminded that they're in Christ or in him or in the beloved or something to that effect. And the whole way through the book of Colossians, Paul's been reminding these believers in Colossae that they're in Christ. And due to the fact that that is their identity, it grants them certain privileges. don't know if you remember as you cast your eye through the first two chapters. He's told them in verse 1, due to the fact that they're in Christ. In verse 2, they're saints. 
If you skip down to the end of the chapter, kind of verse uh, 15 through to 22, he tells them that because you're in Christ, you're totally forgiven. You skip then into verse, or chapter 2, verse 6 down to 15, because you're in Christ, you're alive. And then he continues, because you're in Christ, you're totally free. In fact, all these privileges are now yours due to the fact that your identity is that you are in Christ. But as you come to chapter 3, then things begin to change. The language begins to change. Because this identity that you've been given as a believer and this identity that these believers in Colossae possess isn't some sort of distant, sort of pie-in-the-sky, abstract doctrine. No. Paul says this new identity has profound practical implications in your life. In other words, your identity affects your activity. This is practical. And so Paul starts chapter 3 by saying, Look what he says, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ. In other words, if then you have received this new identity. Here's what your activity is going to look like. You are someone who seeks the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Paul says in light of the new identity that you've been given, it's going to affect how you live. And what's it going to look like? It means you're going to seek the things that are above, not the things that are below. But the question we're all asking as we hear that response is, well, what exactly does that look like? What does it look like to seek the things that are above and not the things that are below? Well, Paul, throughout chapter 3, now starts to put some flesh in the bones, doesn't he? He starts to put some flesh in the bones. And last week, you'll have looked uh, down to verse 11, where Paul shows us what that looks like in a negative sense. So in light of your new identity, now that you're going to seek the things that are above, here are some of the things that you won't do. Here are some of the things that you're going to try and avoid. And now, really, from verse 12 onwards, he's going to speak more in the positive. In light of your new identity in Christ, since you've been raised to life with Christ, here's what seeking things that are above is going to look like in the positive sense. In other words, here's what you are going to do or strive to do. And he really categorizes this section into different relationships. And this little section, verse 12 to 17, he's really focusing on our relationships with each other in church. Church relationships. Here's what your relationships with each other are going to look like as believers in light of your new identity in the Lord Jesus Christ. Or in other words, to slice that a different way, here's what a Christ-centered or a God-centered community really looks like. So let's look at a a couple of things uh, with me. The first thing I think Paul shows them is some reassurance. First they notice the reassurance for a God-centered community community, the reassurance for a God-centered community. Look at verse 12. Paul says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Look how Paul starts this little section. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Before Paul actually starts telling them what to do, he again reminds them of who they are, doesn't he? Before Paul gets into any instructions, he wants to remind them yet again, here's who you are as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Before he says, here's what you do, he says, firstly, you need to remember who you are. And why does Paul do it? Why that order? Well, I think this is to reassure them. This is to reassure these believers. I don't know if you remember the context of the book of Colossians, but Paul is writing to a church that he himself probably didn't plant it was probably planted by Epaphras. And things were going really well in this church until this particular group entered the church and started offering some dangerous teaching. 
And the dangerous teaching which they were offering was to say that if you want to be truly spiritual, Jesus is all right. He's great. He's a good starting point. But the truth is, you need these other things. You need these add-ons. You need to perform these rituals, these religious duties. If you want to be really chosen, if you want to be really holy or really loved by God, then you need Jesus plus all these other things. And so Paul's been going at great lengths, hasn't he, throughout the book of Colossians to remind these believers, no, in Jesus you have everything you need. And so yet again he wants to re-emphasize that point as he now gets into some moral instructions that he wants them to follow. He says, but before I get into those moral instructions, let me remind you, let me give you confidence that already you're chosen, holy, and loved. Isn't that liberating? So as I get to these moral instructions that I'm about to give you, don't think of them as things that you need to be to be holy and loved and chosen. Paul says, you're already holy, loved, and chosen. And due to the fact that you're already holy, loved, and chosen, due to the fact that God has given you this gracious new identity, here's how you should be motivated to live. Let that motivate you to serve him. And you know, if you're here and you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're here and you're a Christian, that too is true of you. Positionally before God, because of the Lord Jesus Christ, when God looks at you, he says you're chosen, holy, and loved. I don't know how that makes you feel, but here's how that makes me feel. When I'm aware of my own sin, as you're aware of your own sin, and you're aware of your weakness, and how prone you are to wander, this does a couple of things to me. Firstly, it humbles me, doesn't it? That this God who knows me and my inmost being would dare to call me, because of the finished work of Christ, holy, chosen, and loved. It humbles me, but it also motivates me. That this God, this God of the universe, this God who is perfect and holy and righteous, in spite of my sin, because of the finished work of Christ, would dare look into my life and your life and say, you're holy, chosen, and loved. And I think this is a great reassurance from Paul. The reassurance of a Christ-centered community. But notice not just then the reassurance of the Christ-centered community. Notice secondly, the requirements of a Christ-centered community. The requirements of a Christ-centered community. Paul then goes on to give them the requirements of what a Christ-centered community is going to look like. I've reminded you of your identity. Now here's the outworkings of what that's going to look like. And really, if you were to sum this all up, or if Paul is trying to sum this all up, he does that in verse 14, doesn't he? Look at verse 14. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Paul says, what are the requirements of a God-centered community? What does that truly look like? Well, it looks like a group of loving people, people who just radically love one another. But what does that love look like? Well, he kind of unfolds it for us in verse 12. Put on as God's chosen, holy, and beloved people, here's five principles, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, or gentleness, and patience. Paul says, what does a Christ-centered community look like? It looks like people who demonstrate all of these characteristics, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Due to the fact that you're in Christ, in light of your new identity, Paul says, here's the characteristics that you need to strive towards. Remember the context. He's not saying, here's what you need to be to be saved. He's saying, here's the things you need to strive towards because you are saved in light of your new identity. And why these things? 
Because as your new identity in Christ, isn't this true that each of these characteristics are extremely resonant and epitomized in the life of Jesus? Wasn't Jesus someone who was brimming with compassion? Do you remember that little passage in in Matthew chapter 9 where Jesus looks at the crowd and it says he was moved with compassion. The word there is gutso. That he's literally, that's where we get our word gutted. Jesus was gutted as he looked at the crowds. Why? Because he says they were like sheep without a shepherd. Isn't Jesus the perfect epitome of kindness? Ephesians chapter 2 verse 7, Paul says that God has seated us in the highest places so that we might know the kindness of the Lord Jesus. Isn't Jesus the epitome of humility? Remember what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 verse 8, talking about Jesus, though he is equal with God, he didn't view it as something to be grasped, so he humbled himself. Isn't Jesus the perfect example of meekness or gentleness? Remember that passage in Matthew eleven twenty eight, where Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Isn't Jesus the perfect epitome of patience? 2 Peter 3 verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness. Rather, he is patient with you, not wishing that any would perish, but that all would come to faith and repentance. All of these characteristics, Paul says, these are what you need to strive for as your new identity is in Christ. Why? Because Jesus Christ epitomizes all of these things. And so as you grow in your likeness of him, here's what these characteristics are going to look like in your life. And it's quite possible that you look at that list and you think about yourself. And you think, that that list is lovely, but some of them just aren't really me. I mean, it's not really fitting with my personality. I'm not really a gentle person. The kind thing, I can kind of do the kindness part. That's okay, I can, I can do that part. But gentle, eh. Or maybe, you know, there's other virtues there which I kind of pick and choose which ones I like, which ones maybe don't fit with how I'm hardwired. And I was talking about this to my pastor actually recently, and he said this, I thought it was interesting. How often do we as believers use personality to excuse sin? How often do we as believers use personality to excuse sin? That's not really me. Or don't mind her. I mean, she's a wee bit outspoken, quite harsh with her words, but that's just her. Don't don't mind her. Paul would say, no. You can't use personality to excuse sin. Your personality needs to be shaped and molded by the gospel. In light of your new identity, you need to strive towards these characteristics to represent and resonate the heart of the Lord Jesus, to whom your identity is now a reflection. Paul says, strive because of the fact that you're in Christ. Strive with everything you've got to be people of compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. This is what a Christ-centered community looks like. And the truth is, we read those virtues and we think they're really lovely. And we think that they're a great idea, really, really good. Uh, But the truth is, most of us, when we think about this sort of community, a loving community, Quite often we like the idea of community more than the experience of community, don't we? Quite often we like the idea of community more than the actual experience of community. Why? Because actually the experience of community is very costly. I like the idea of a forgiving people until it comes to me where I have to forgive someone else who I don't think deserves it. I love the idea of being self-controlled or being gentle or being meek until I feel riled up in a conflict And it's going to actually involve me demonstrating those qualities. 
most of us, if we're honest, we like the idea of community, but actually the experience of community we find far more difficult. And Paul knows that to be true. Look what he says in verse 13. He's extremely realistic, isn't he? He's extremely realistic. He doesn't just say, here's what a lovely church looks like, but look what he says in verse 13 as he explains these requirements of what it looks like. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint with one another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Paul says you need to bear with one another. You need to bear with one another. Isn't that strange language? Because when we think about community, it's kind of this buzzword, and it's maybe a bit idealistic in our minds sometimes, but this little phrase, bearing with one another, doesn't really fit the mold. Sounds a bit raw, doesn't it? It's not very romantic language. But Paul's being brutally honest in the fact that saying, you know what, even though you've got this new identity that you're in Christ, that you're holy, you're blameless before him positionally, the truth is, practically, you're still a sinner, aren't you? Day by day, you know in your own heart, you keep messing up, you keep falling into sin. And so these two realities are both equally true in the life of a believer. Positionally before God, we're holy, we're chosen, we're loved, but practically we're still sinners. And you see this in your life every single day. And so isn't it fascinating that the believers who are capable of the godly-like qualities in verse 12 are also capable of the sometimes ugly characteristics which are implied in verse 13? And so Paul says, bear with one another. You as one sinner are coming together with 100, 200 other sinners. Think of all the sin in that room. There's going to be times where you just need to bear with one another. and Forgive one another. And the answer to the question then that we ask is, how then do I cross the pain barrier? How then do I actually count the cost of community? and Go through the pain barrier whenever it's tough for me to forgive someone else, where it's tough for me to be gentle with someone else. Well, Paul, as you've seen, soaks this entire passage in motivations, doesn't he? What was the first motivation he gave us? In light of your new identity, that you're holy, chosen, and loved, God has lavished his grace upon you by giving you this new identity, and now he's going to give you another motivation to cross the pain barrier in demonstrating these qualities. And this motivation, again, is out of the grace of God. It's not his grace in giving you a new identity, but it's his grace in his finished work on your behalf. Look what he says, verse 13. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so too you must also forgive. What's the motivation? To cross the pain barrier, to go through the costly experience of community. It's to remember that the Lord has forgiven you. The Lord bears with you. You know the weight of your own sin and the Lord bears with you. He has forgiven you. He's given you this new identity. And so Paul's saying, can you not do the same for other people to a far lesser degree? Because isn't it true that whenever we struggle to bear with one another, whenever we struggle to forgive one another, quite often the reason behind that is because we have in that moment an elevated view of self. And we don't actually acknowledge that we ourselves are capable of the exact same sin that they're capable of in that moment and even worse. Whenever we mess up, we sugarcoat it with a thousand justifications, don't we? I mean, I was very unkind, but I was having a tough week. I was very unkind, but they kind of provoked me. I was very unkind, but I've got a lot of pressures at work at the moment. And as soon as we mess up, we sugarcoat it in all these justifications and we do a thousand rationalizing activities in our own mind as to justify why we behaved in that particular way. But when someone else does it, well, they get no such joy. They get no such privilege. 
we always assume the worst of others. In other words, when we mess up, we want mercy, but when others mess up, we want justice. Isn't that true? I was reminded of uh, this principle in my own life this week. Uh, I don't know about you, but whenever I, where I particularly struggle to exhibit these characteristics is when I'm driving. Okay? I suffer from road rage, confession time. And uh, one thing that really annoys me is when people don't, some of you are here, whenever people don't indicate at roundabouts. Isn't that frustrating? Um, now keep in mind, I'm from Palomino, so we have a lot more roundabouts than you do. You, you've, you do traffic lights well. We do roundabouts well. Every time you've got traffic lights, we've got roundabouts. And uh, Tuesday on my way to work, I'm sitting trying to join the roundabout. And this car's on the roundabout, and I'm thinking he's going to keep going around the roundabout, so I can't join yet. And then he, without indicating, pulls off at the exit before mine. And I start going crazy on my way to the Baptist Centre. Okay? I start going absolutely crazy thinking he shouldn't be on the roads, he's not early, I'm going to be late for work, all this here, going absolutely crazy at this driver who I don't know. Anyway, later on, coming home from work, I'm on the roundabout, and uh, I turn off an exit, and I don't indicate. And I could tell the guy at the next exit was kind of looking at me, going like this here. And what do I do? I immediately get defensive. I go, who does he think he is? He's a psycho. He needs to go to anger management. The very thing that I did earlier on that day, about eight hours before, When we mess up, we want mercy. When others mess up, we want justice. We tend to have an elevated view of self. And isn't that what Paul's saying? And in a motivation to bear with one another, as a motivation to forgive one another, remember and have a realistic view of your own sin. Remember what the Lord has forgiven you. Remember that you're equally capable of doing equally dark and deceptive means through which is exhibited in your own heart. And to remember the great debt that has been paid on your behalf. And let that motivate you to strive, to bear with each other and to forgive each other. Just as the Lord has forgiven you. The reassurance of a God-centered community. The requirements of a God-centered community. Thirdly then, notice the result of a God-centered community. Verse 15. Verse 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you indeed were called in one body and be thankful. What's the result of these characteristics when they're exhibited? Paul says it's peace. Letting the peace of Christ dwell. I don't think he's talking about peace here, uh, internal peace. I don't think he's talking about internal peace. And quite often we, we think about the peace that God gives us maybe when making a decision or in certain circumstances that God gives you a peace about it. Uh, that I think is in the scripture but it's not here. This isn't peace within you. This is peace among you. He's still talking corporately about the church. He says, let there be peace dwelling among you. This is the result of all these characteristics being exhibited amongst you. These, these characteristics of, of gentleness and compassion and kindness and humility and patience. He says, the peace of Christ will rule among you. And peace is not the opposite of conflict. Peace is not the opposite of conflict. Paul has given us a realistic view in verse 13. He says, no, this conflict is going to come to the fore. We're sinful people operating in a sinful world. We're going to have conflict. But conflict doesn't always need to lead to hostility. Why? Whenever it's dealt with through the lens of verse 12 and verse 13. When we approach conflict, which is inevitable, through the lens of compassion and kindness and grace and mercy, Bearing with one another and forgiving one another. Because here's the truth. The cost of community is actually a consequence of God-centered community, isn't it? 
the cost of community, this, this rubbing each other up the wrong way, this conflict emerging, it's inevitable. It's going to happen. Because we're sinful people. And Paul warns us in verse 13 that it is going to happen. And so the temptation for us or the danger for us is to say, church is a messy place. I've maybe got burned before. I don't really like it. So I'm going to hold everyone at an arm's length. I'm never going to get super committed to a church again. I'm never going to get too close. I'm never going to be vulnerable. I'm never going to join a ministry. Why? Because I've done it before and I've got hurt. Paul says, no, this is actually a consequence of God-centered community. You are sinful people living in a sinful world. And so he says, when conflict comes, deal with it through the lens of compassion, kindness, humility, grace. And there will be peace among you. Peace among you. Reassurance for a God-centered community. The requirements of a God-centered community. The result of a God-centered community. Notice fourthly then, the resources of a God-centered community. The resources of a God-centered community. What then do we need? What then do we need in order to live these characteristics, to demonstrate these characteristics. Paul has given us loads of applications, loads of motivations, and here he's going to help us even more. In order to be this sort of community, look what he says, verse uh, 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and with thankfulness in your hearts to God. What's the resource? What do we need to cling to? Well, he tells us there at the start of that verse. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. See, Paul's really saying, if you want to let the peace of God dwell, then you need to lead the word of God rule. If you want to let the peace of God dwell, then you need to let the word of God rule. And when he talks about the word of God here, we probably immediately think about the Bible, but I don't think he's actually referring to the Bible. This little phrase is unique to this point in Colossians, but previously in chapter 1, Paul's used language similar to this. He talked about the word of truth in chapter 1, verse 5. And he talked about uh, the word of God in chapter 1, verse 25. And in the first instance in verse 5, he clarifies what he means, and he's talking about the gospel. So I think all three of these little phrases are referring to the gospel. What Paul's really saying is, let the gospel rule. Let the gospel rule. Let the gospel compel you. Let the gospel Fill you, let the gospel win your heart every single day. And he gives us some examples of how that can play itself out. Let the gospel rule through, firstly, teaching. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching. And so we need to be gospel people from the front as we teach and proclaim the Bible. We are gospel-centered people. Let the gospel rule through, secondly, admonishing. And being accountable to one another it can be used negatively or it can be used positively. It can also mean exhorting and, and disciplining each other in the gospel or exhorting each other in the gospel. And thirdly then he gives us the example of singing. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That's why it's important the songs that we sing. It's why the content of the songs that we sing are important because they need to be Songs which remind us of the gospel, what Christ has done for us on our behalf, and because of our new life in him. Paul says if we want to exhibit these characteristics, our chief resource is the gospel, the word of God, which needs to permeate every dimension of our activities and our life together. This is the resource of a Christ-centered community. And you'll notice that he says at the end of that verse, quite randomly, with thankfulness in your hearts, 
with thankfulness in your hearts. And this little idea of thankfulness is kind of sporadically mentioned the whole way through the end of this section. I don't know if you noticed it at the end of the verse before. At the end of verse 15 he says, and be thankful. He just kind of randomly adds, and be thankful at the end of verse 15. He also adds it as we see at the end of verse 16, with thankfulness in your hearts. And he's going to do it again at the end of verse 17. Cast your eye down to verse 17. Giving thanks to God the Father through him. Paul keeps sporadically inserting this little reminder to be thankful. And why does he do that? I've been scratching my head this week trying to figure out why, but I think he's trying to interweave this idea of thankfulness throughout this passage in the same way that thankfulness ought to be woven through our lives. Because the mindset of thankfulness is a very powerful motivation, isn't it? The mindset of thankfulness is a very powerful motivation. If I was to come down to you after the service and say, here's a million pounds, and then we kind of keep a conversation going after, I've just given you a million pounds, and then I was to kind of say, you know, I really need some help around the house next Saturday morning, would you, would you mind giving me a hand? I think you'd say, absolutely, no bother, because I'm extremely thankful for what you've done for me. I was talking to Jeremy before the, the, uh, the service this morning, and we were kind of bonding over the fact that we're both Arsenal fans. And uh, it's been a painful experience the past number of years being an Arsenal fan. Um, I had my heart broken a few years ago. Well, I've had my heart broken a lot being an Arsenal fan, but one particular instance was when my favourite player left the football club. Uh, a guy called Alexi Sanchez. And he went to Man United and it was pretty tough, tough uh, phase of life. Uh, but I remember the reason Alexis Sanchez was my favorite football player was because he was so hardworking. He was like the hardest working player in the team. He would always chase every ball. He'd be running back and forth. He would literally come off the pitch exhausted because he would bust the gut doing everything, working so hard for the football team. And he showed everyone else up with just the amount of work he would put in. And I remember reading an interview with Alexis Sanchez, and uh, the, the guy who was conducting the interview just asked him, why is it that you work so hard? How is it that you're motivated to work so hard when other members in the team don't work anywhere near as hard as you do? What motivates you? And his answer wasn't the fact that he's on 100 grand a week or whatever it was. We might think that would motivate us to work hard. His answer was this. I just realized that I am so privileged to get to do this for my job. I realize the upbringing I've had, I realize the background I've had, the family I came from, and I am just so thankful that I have this opportunity to play football for a living. What was his motivation? It was thankfulness. And I think Paul just weaves this idea of thankfulness through this passage because it's a very powerful mindset in us as humans, isn't it? When we're thankful, we're very rarely spiteful. When we're thankful, we're very rarely hateful. Why? Because thanksgiving and gratitude is, in essence, the heartbeat of our motivation to live as Christians, isn't it? In light of the grace which has been lavished upon us, we strive to exhibit these characteristics which is laid out for us in verse 12 and 13. Grace is a powerful motivator, isn't it? That's what Dallas Willard says. He says, grace doesn't oppose effort. Grace motivates effort. I was listening to a sermon just this week by John Piper, and he said, Something along these lines. Similarly, he says, true Christians are never lazy because grace is a powerful, powerful motivator. And that's why Paul has went at great lengths as he's given these moral instructions. It's not simply a list of do's and don'ts. He has seeped it full of motivations pointing you to the grace of God. The grace he's given you in granting you this new identity. The grace in, in giving you the Lord Jesus Christ to be the forgiveness of your sins. He's lavished it upon you, so be thankful. Be thankful. 
the reassurance for a God-centered community, the requirements, the resource, the result. And fifthly and finally, notice the reminder. The reminder for a God-centered community. Look what he says in verse 17. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. What's the reminder? Well, the reminder is this. It's all about Jesus. It's all about him. To maybe use language a little bit harsher than Paul's. The reminder is this. It's not actually about you. It's about Jesus. And that's helpful, isn't it? I'm at the, the stage of life uh, where I feel like I go to weddings very, very frequently. I feel like every month I'm at a, I'm at a wedding. And uh, I remember recently, about a year ago, I was on a wedding. I was a groomsman. And uh, we were all given the, the clothes that we had to wear. And uh, I was, we were all wearing bow ties. And I had never wore a bow tie in my life. I'd only wore the wee fake uh, clip on once. And so I had no idea how to make a bow tie. And so that morning when we were all getting ready... Everyone else was finished, and I was still footering away at this bow tie, trying to make it look half decent. And I just kept flopping side to side, and I was getting really stressed out. We're about to leave the house in ten minutes, and I could not get my bow tie on. And uh, one of the bridesmaids looked at me. It wasn't a bridesmaid. One of the girls who was in the house looked at me and says, "Matthew, it's not about you. It's about the bride and groom. No one cares about your bow tie." Is effectively what she was saying. And uh, that did two things for me. Okay, the first thing it did was it, it kind of humbled me. Right, I was like, okay. Uh, but the second thing it was, was it was a little bit liberating. I was like, you know what, you're totally right. Today's not about me, it's about the bride and groom. No one really cares about me. And that's in a sense what's true of our lives in the church, isn't it? It's not about you, it's not about me, it's all about the Lord Jesus. It's all about him, it's his church. That's the reminder Paul gave us in chapter 1, verse 17 and 18. Jesus is the head of the church, it's his. And so let that firstly humble you if it needs to humble you. As you live life together, as we fight for our preferences and what we want to see church look like, it's not about you, it's about Jesus. Let that humble you, but let that also liberate you. It's all about Jesus. The Lord Jesus will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so he simply asks you to strive by his grace to become more and more like him and to be faithful until death. Let me pray for us as we close.